Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. What I'm about to say is probably the least controversial thing you'll hear all day. Like less controversial than me saying... Man, it is cold outside, knowing full well it's the middle of January. Less controversial than saying, you know what's good? Sandwiches. So let me just say it. The 1970s were a very funky decade. Of course, we know what the funk is capable of and how much it developed over the course of the decade, eventually running head-on into disco and house, But in those first couple of years of the 70s, Sly and the Family Stone didn't just dip their toes into funk like a lot of other future funketeers. They dove in Afro first. Unlike the group's previous releases, which consisted largely of music for the best party you've ever been to, 1971's There's a Riot Going On was music for the morning after. Or the morning before the morning after. Like 3 to 5 a.m. It all at once cares very much and couldn't care any less. It was the sound of a band discovering more and more about production, about social injustice, and about themselves and each other. If you were a fan of Sly and the Family Stones, Prior to There's a Riot going on, you got psych-flavored Sly and the Family Stone for four whole albums. Four albums, by the way, in just two years, between 1967 and 1969. And then, real life happened. And then a show didn't happen. And that psychedelic band that emerged on the other side of 1970 just wasn't the same. They were still great, but they were different. In this episode, we'll look at Sly and the Family Stone's shift from delightfully psychedelic to vitally lush and sometimes a little depressing. And we'll look at the world around them that made them that way. For the Consequence Podcast Network, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Let's get down. Now, before we go on, I want to let you know that I know that while the funk is not really the point of There's a Riot going on, it is one of the reasons it remains so listenable, even though it sometimes has some very 
difficult subject matter. Police brutality, the lack of civil rights for black people, Jim Crow, the death of the psychedelic movement, the birth of something else entirely. I also wanted you to know that I know that Sly and the Family Stone didn't invent funk or anything like that, or the concept of bass-driven melodic pop music. James Brown, for one, had been around for years by the time Sly and his band came busting out with 1967's A Whole New Thing. With oof, the incredible opening track, Underdog. Oh my God, what a banger. But what James was doing wasn't what Sly was doing. And what Sly was doing wasn't what anybody was doing. And James was not really worried about it. He was really good at his thing. This is Joseph Patel. He's an award-winning producer, director, and writer who recently produced the feature documentary Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. It's the birth of funk, right? I mean, James Brown obviously has a lot to do with that, but run through the prism of what George Clinton's brain is, run through the prism of what Sly's brain is, it comes out just a different vibe, a different energy. You know, every album changes the equation, right? Everything they release just is a it just upends what the convention is and creates something new. Sly and the rest of the family Stone, who at the time were Rose and Freddie Stone, Sly's sister and brother, Cynthia Robinson, Jerry Martini, Greg Errico, and Larry Graham. They were all in a very psychedelic headspace on their previous releases. And at the end of the 60s, so were a lot of people. But they were one of the best to do it. One of the best live bands anyone had ever seen. In fact, their appearance at Woodstock was so good that when I spoke to Carlos Santana about his experience at Woodstock, he had to admit that the Family Stone was the highlight of the festival and that even his own band maybe got the bronze that weekend. 550,000 people. All of a sudden, it's the worst is awakened to a sound but there was only three bands. I mean, there's a lot of bands, but only three bands. Sly, 2 or two, 3.30 in the morning, Jimmy and Santana. Everybody else have to fight for fourth place, you know, because this three, this three, this three one, and I was there, Sly Stone, numero uno, at 2.30 in the morning. This is at a peak when, you know, dance to the music. I mean, Sly Stone at Woodstock, Jimmy Hendrick and Santana. Their unannounced set at 1969's Harlem Cultural Festival, the six-week-long festival documented in Summer of Soul, was another really good example of their incredibly wild stage show and stage presence. In a world that was used to seeing soul groups and matching outfits, and if we're being super honest, matching complexions, Sly and his band, with their hippie style, and even more radical, their racial and gender integration. I mean, I think what's extraordinary about that time period in particular, 69, summer of 69, is all this stuff is happening, you know, offstage and in the country. And it's a very volatile, tumultuous time. But also what's happening, I think, in music is that, right, a lot of these sounds are happening for the first time. And I, and I think that it's it probably must have been a blast if you were a musician in 69 
and you were touring and running into other bands and seeing other bands and seeing what, how they were playing. Like, you know, the thing about Sly historically, even before 69 is they are a multiracial band. They are a multi-gender band. They are playing in their street clothes. They're not even wearing, right. They're not, they're the anti-Motown. They're not choreographed or wearing fancy suits and dresses. They are, you know, quite literally, you know, in their street clothes and they are playing music that breaks down the conventions of what music is supposed to sound like back then. So I think that their live show must have been, to some people, it must have been like aliens landed. The space in between 1968's stand and 1971's There's a Riot Going On is where the aforementioned real life happened. In big ways to the world and in personally big, big, big ways to the band. To the world, social injustice. Black people were not being treated well and Sly Stone had gotten involved with the Black Panther Party, and he was actively working to further civil rights. The Panthers wanted Sly to use his platform in the same way he was using his regular voice and make more militant music. Remember how I said that the Family Stone were one of the only big acts to be racially integrated at the time? Well, the Black Panther Party was not down with that. They wanted Sly to replace drummer Greg Errico and saxophonist Jerry Martini and their manager in favor of black musicians and management. As you can imagine, rifts within the group started to crack wide open. And eventually, Sly did get new personal management. And eventually, well, we'll get to that. Oh, and all the drug use. That certainly didn't help. And the label as labels do, wanted some new material. And what they got in the meantime was a greatest hits compilation and one new single called Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again, which was given a retooling on There's a Riot Going On. The album closer, this one, was called Thank You for Talking to Me, Africa. also got one very reclusive band leader. According to other Family Stone members, Sly had begun recording most of the album by himself, and he used new production techniques like manual overdubbing that he hadn't been doing before, and tools like the preset sounds on the Maestro Rhythm King MRK2. It's very hot tech at the time. And those other band members were now recording by themselves with Sly instead of playing all together like they used to, which I bet was really fun. That sounds really fun. And some new players were added to the mix. Strong players. Ike Turner and Bobby Womack sat in on guitar. 
Billy Preston, who I guess was clearly not tired of being in recording studios at a very weird vibes, joined in for supplemental keyboards. And drummer Gary Gibson added to percussion. In all of these circumstances, along with a disaster of a live event in Chicago that we'll discuss in episode four of this season, resulted in a dark semi-concept album that was part drug den, part protest prep party. Here's Joseph Patel. I think that probably it's like my third favorite Sly album, second favorite Sly album. It's the album that is most different from Sly's catalog prior to, to its release. It is the one with less familiar songs on it compared to previous albums like Stand or Dance to the Music. It's probably the most technically sophisticated record. It just feels like it's like the band. It feels like Sly because really Sly recorded There's a Riot going on, wrote, wrote and recorded it himself mostly. Which is which is different than how Sly recorded previous albums, right? Previous albums were done a lot of times in the studio, a lot of times with everyone's input. And what happens is, is in '69, Woodstock happens, and and Sly and the Family Stone are the biggest band in the country, and somehow that freaks Sly out, and he spends the next year and a half writing and recording. There's a riot going on mostly by himself, mostly in his bedroom, mostly on drugs. And he's reclusive. And I think all of those things you can hear and there's riot going on. It is probably the most interesting Sly album. Uh, it's not my favorite Sly album, but it's it's close because it's so interesting. This is our good friend Steve Huey from allmusic.com. You know, there's this very eclectic musical stew that they're doing and it's very rhythmic, but you can draw in elements of whatever else you want. And that's also very much what Sly and the Family Stone is like, but in their own different way. It's, they're very eclectic. They're drawing in musical threads from all over the place. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of all unified by that beat and, and by that slap bass that nobody had ever heard before from Larry Graham that is so influential and has such an impact. The whole thing was progressive. Like all of it, in every sense of the word, like its subject matter, to the musical pendulum that it swung progressively further to the left. And in autumn of 1971, after all of the world waiting, Sly Stone handed over his mixes to the label, and CBS issued Family Affair as the first single. It was their fourth and final number one song. Now, why was it called There's a Riot Going On? It's an answer to a question that I think most people thought was rhetorical. Marvin Gaye asked with his then six-month-old album, What's Going On? What's going on? And Sly and the Family Stone said, There's a riot going on. You see it's in the blood Both kids are good and brown Blood's thicker than the mud It's a family affair It's a family affair It's a family affair It's a family affair, a family affair. 
This album starts off with a heavy sigh of disappointment to the counterculture that birthed Sly and the Family Stone right at the top with a song called Love and Hate. And then right in the middle, it makes a quick stop with some very pointed silence. Zero minutes and zero seconds for the title track. Makes you think. Sometimes maybe just for zero minutes and zero seconds, but the point was made. The album reminds you that heavy drugs were definitely involved with Spaced Cowboy. One of the funkiest bass lines I've ever heard. And it ends with Thank You for Talking to Me, Africa. A, a song so deeply funky and so lyrically disturbing that you're left wondering where on earth this band could possibly go next. We just kind of figured out where they came from. But what did come next were lineup changes, some broken relationships, some more hit singles. But now, in 1971, the riot within the band was just starting to simmer. On the next episode of The Opus, we're going to look at the influences and samples that came from this iconic album and what came out of Sly and the Family Stone's sowed seeds of funk. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time. This is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you've done checking out the latest episode of the show, be sure to check out some of the other awesome programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including The What Podcast, a weekly show by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. Or Going There with Dr. Mike. It's an interview podcast series in which clinical psychologist and life coach Dr. Mike Friedman talks with musicians about the crossroads where music and mental health meet. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast.